0: Well, if you will, open to me in your Bibles to Psalm 33. (coughs) Psalm 33 will be the psalm that we're looking at this morning. Psalm 33, we'll begin by reading the whole psalm together and we will be focusing our attention especially this morning on the emphasis in the psalm on the fact that God is creator and on the fact that as creator he is sovereign and why that sovereignty should bring to all of the people of God abundant joy. And so again, we'll begin by reading the whole psalm together, beginning in verse 1 and down to verse 22. Beginning in verse 1, we read Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of ten spirits. Uh, 10 strings, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, we rejoice this day because You have revealed Yourself to be the Almighty Creator. The one who by Your Word has bring all things into existence. And the one who by this very same Word accomplishes all Your holy will and purposes. And it is because You are sovereign over all, Lord, that we can rest and hope and wait and trust in You. It is because You are the one who determines the beginning from the end. That we can rest in the sure promises that You have made to us. That because of the work of Christ, because of His death, burial, and resurrection, and His summons to all people to come to Him that they may have life, we who have come will have life. That even if it is the case that we die That our bodies come to their end before Your return. We will immediately be brought to life into Your presence. And we will rise again as Christ Himself has risen. And so Lord, it is Your sovereignty that we can rest in and rejoice in. So I do pray, Lord, that as we consider what is revealed for us in this very psalm, that we would have the hearts that are in David, the hearts that are in your other servants that rejoice in your sovereignty over all. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was working through this psalm this morning, and um, not only this morning, but this, this week as well. Um, One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about was just how over the course of my own Christian walk, um, I have found it to be a strange occurrence within the lives of many within the broader Christian world that the subject of the sovereignty of God is something that many people frankly disdain. They have an aversion to it. There's something that doesn't sit well uh, with them when the matter gets brought up. Of course, when we talk about God's sovereignty over all things, we are, we are talking about the fact that He rules over all. And that there is not a single thing that happens in the world apart from His divine determination and will and purpose. And there are many who find this very truth many who bear the name of Christian to be quite disturbing. It's problematic for how they view the world, how they view themselves. There was a movement, in fact, not too long ago that gained a lot of traction in the 90's and in the early 2000's known as open theism. Which went so far as to argue that God Could not and does not even know the future. Because if he knows the future, that means he determines it and it's fixed. It can't be changed. And for the open theist, that would require denying the freedom of man, at least as they understood it and as they. Framed it, it would deny the freedom of man's will. And the freedom of man's will is what must be preserved at all costs. It is the philosophical position, the theological statement that must be upheld. And can never be changed or fixed or or, or corrected or modified in any way. It is, in essence, the idol, the Dagon, which cannot fall. Because if it falls, it shatters our whole worldview. And for the open theist, that could not be the case. We can deny, we can reject. We can reshape God's freedom. We can reshape His will. We can redefine His sovereignty. But our sovereignty, our autonomy, our will cannot have any sort of modifications to it at all. It must be completely, absolutely autonomous and free. Men have always had a disdain and a rebellion against the truth that it is God who is sovereign over all. And again, as I mentioned, even within the wider Christian world. And I've always found this to be quite strange and unfortunate because, biblically, it is the very sovereignty of God that provides for the believer the very ground and foundation for the hope and joy and praise that we can have towards God. And this is what we see even this morning from the very psalm that we've just read. Now, though this psalm, as you look here in the beginning, doesn't begin as others have with a superscript that identifies for us David as its author. I think we can say that by virtue of the fact that it is surrounded by other Davidic Psalms as well as the fact that the Septuagint itself identifies it as Davidic, we have good reason to believe that David wrote this Psalm as well. And David begins, if you notice, in this psalm, calling the people of God, calling the upright, he says, to praise the Lord and to make melody to Him and to sing to Him a new song. He is calling the people of God to rejoice with Him in the Lord. And the reason He gives for the praise, the reason for the joy, the reason for the singing, the celebrating, the musical festivities, the reason in essence for the grand party that is to be thrown in celebration of God has to do with the fact that God is the Creator And as the Creator is sovereign over all. It is God's sovereignty, in other words, that makes David's heart full of joy, not full of disdain, not full of trouble, not full of all kinds of mental complications. It is the fact that God reigns supreme over every event that takes place in the world and over every person and creature that exists in the world. It is this very reality that here in this psalm causes David to rejoice and to call others to join him in that rejoicing. And therefore, friends, it ought to be the same for us as well. It ought to be the case that it is the sovereignty of God that brings to us, that that fills our hearts with much rejoicing. God's sovereignty should not be just some mere theological abstraction. It shouldn't be just a doctrinal formulation that's within the Reformation tradition of Christianity. His sovereignty is a truth that should cause us to rejoice and to grow all the more in our confidence in and love for God. And so I want us to consider what this psalm teaches us about the sovereignty of God this morning. And we'll do so by considering four, four different truths about His sovereignty. And the first truth that I want us to consider concerns the Lord's sovereignty in creation. The Lord's sovereignty in creation. Now, as the psalm progresses after this call to praise the Lord, David explains the reason why he's calling people to praise the Lord in verses 4 and 5, saying there that it is because the word of the Lord is upright and his works are faithful, they're done in faithfulness, and his steadfast love fills the whole earth. And then he goes on to unpack this, this, if you will, summary statement further by focusing specifically on the Lord as creator in verses 6 to 9. And this here is a section that all throughout refers directly back to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account that we read about there. It was, we we read, it was by the Word of the Lord, David says, that the heavens were made and all their host. Again, just as we read from Moses who wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as he says further in Genesis 1, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And then, of course, we see him creating the sun and the moon and the stars, all of the host of heaven. David then adds in verse seven he says, He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps into storehouses. Referring here back to day three of creation, where God says, There, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And then David summarizes all of God's creative works, everything that took place in Genesis chapter one. He summarizes this in verse nine when He says there, for He spoke, and it came to be. Or He spoke, and it was. Which of course, harkens back to the language that we read in every single day of creation in Genesis 1, where it says, and God said, we're given a description of what He says, and it was so. And God said this, He creates, and then it was so. He spoke, and it came to be. And so David here, of course, is meditating on God as the Creator. And as he does, it becomes very clear that this particular truth of God being the Creator, this means something for him. This has... Implications that stretch far beyond what's going on in David's own mind. It goes far beyond what's residing within his own heart. The fact that the Lord has created or or is the Creator. The fact that it is the God of Israel. The God who has made Himself known chiefly in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. The fact that He is the Creator implies that He is sovereign over all things. He has sovereign rights over all creation. And that most especially includes All of those who have been created in His image. The crown of His creative acts in Genesis 1 is the creation of man and woman to be image bearers reflecting His glory, reflecting His will on the earth. And God, by virtue of being their Creator, has sovereign rights over all people. Mankind as a whole belongs to God. And David says in verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him." He is here, of course, commanding the world. Commanding all people everywhere to worship the Lord. To worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, and to fear Him alone. And David, of course, is saying this in a day when every man and every country and every empire has their own gods that they worshipped. They had their own household idols. They had their own traditions. Their own religious practices. They had their own unique pagan cultures. But of course, we know from Scripture that Scripture is not pluralistic. There is no sense in which it is right or good or biblical that different peoples from different lands can have their own gods, and we who believe in the God of Israel will just do our own thing and keep to ourselves, and they can do their own thing and keep to themselves. There's no sense throughout all of Scripture in which that is ever a good, acceptable thing to do in the eyes of God. Now, the fact that the Lord is the only Creator and the only God demands, requires, obligates of all other image bearers that they forsake all of their false gods. It requires that all peoples give Him and Him alone the worship that is due His name. And it requires that they all walk according to His ways. It is the Lord alone. It is Christ alone through whom all things were made, who has sovereign rights over everyone. He has the authority to kill. He has the authority to make alive. He has the authority to tear down. He has the authority to build up. The Lord does not ask permission to be worshiped. He does not beg that He might be served. No, what He does from the beginning to the end is commanded. This is required. You are made by Me. You are an image bearer called to walk in accordance with My ways. You are to give Me glory. That's not a request. It is an obligation. And as the sovereign King, He decrees it. He has passed it as a binding law over all creation. He writes it on the stones of mountains and He sends it forth to the bottom of the sea. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who owns all of creation and all of the inhabitants within it. There is not a single sphere of creation over which He is not in control and over which He has ever ceded any authority. Not a single sphere. Everything belongs to Him. Now, men may of course, as we often do, speak of different spheres of authority in order to more accurately convey the responsibilities and the limits of man's authority. We may speak, for example, of the sphere of the family. We may speak of the sphere of the church. We may speak of the sphere of the state. They are all different spheres of authority, though at times they may have overlapping spheres. And as a general rule, the state is not granted an absolute authority over the family or over the church Nor does the church exercise an absolute authority over the family or over the state. And nor does the family exercise an absolute authority over the church or the state. Although, as I said a moment ago, there may be times when one authority must be asserted over another. But the point here is that though we may speak of different authorities among men, with God, there are no different spheres. Every single sphere belongs to Him. He is the sovereign King over every aspect of creation. He is not... Sovereign merely over the church. He is sovereign again over every square inch of creation. And he has invested all his authority into a single man. The God man, of course, but a man nevertheless. All authority that belongs to God has been invested in the Son of God who is fully man and who now sits and reigns at the right hand of God over all things. His name, of course, is King Jesus. And this king has issued a royal decree. He has commanded all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins, to trust in Him, and then to live according to His laws. Most especially reflected and seen for us in the Gospels and in the Epistles. He has commanded what His father David commanded in this very psalm. Namely, that all the earth fear the Lord. That all the inhabitants of the world serve Him. All the earth is to submit to His authority. And that means several things. Many things for us friends. But it it means, for example, that if you're something like a police officer... Right, You, of course, have a certain authority that has been granted to you by the state. You, you bear a measure of the sword. But your authority is always to be subsumed under the authority of Christ ultimately. Which means, for example, that if you're commanded ever to do what is unrighteous and unbiblical, you must reject the authority of the state for the sake of obedience to Christ. If you are, as I know we have several here, who are teachers in schools, it's the same for you. You have an authority that has been granted to you that you exercise in your school and in the classroom. But your authority as well is always to be subsumed under the authority of Christ. And you dare not ever violate the law of the King of Kings to serve the lower kings who call you to violate His laws. It's the same if you're a boss of your own business. You have authority over your employees. But that authority is subsumed under the authority of Christ. If you are a husband, if you are a father, you have an authority in your home, in the family. But that authority is always to be subsumed under the authority of Christ. There is no one who has an absolute authority except for God. And it is because He is the Creator that He has authority over every sphere. And therefore, all lesser authorities are required obligated commanded to serve him to rule and to exercise their authorities in accordance with his will now there is of course more to be said on this particular point for sure but for the sake of time let's consider a second truth about the sovereignty of god which concerns his sovereignty of counsel. The sovereignty of counsel. And what the Lord's sovereignty of counsel means is that everything He has determined to do, all of His plans, all of them will be accomplished. There is nothing that can ever thwart any aspect of His will or purposes. There is nothing and no one who can frustrate His counsel. And this is of truth. This particular truth is one that quite obviously separates and distinguishes Him from the rest of mankind. The heart of man plans His way, but the Lord establishes His steps. Men make plans all the time. They can set out to rule the world. They can set out to spread their fame and glory far and wide. But a single moment and a single decree from the Lord can obliterate all of His plans in a single moment. We find examples of this, of course, all over Scripture. We find examples from later history. We find examples from our own experience. As we read earlier from 2 Kings, the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib at one time, who commanded the strongest empire in the world in the 8th century B.C., No one could stop them. No city ever stopped the horde of their armies when they came through. This king, Sennacherib, set his heart on conquering Jerusalem. On conquering the city of God. On conquering the place where the Lord said He would establish His name. And when he turned his heart, when he fixed his eyes on conquering Jerusalem, in a single night, the Lord killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's finest soldiers. There is no way from that point on that he is to conquer Jerusalem. And we see him turning back and all of his plans being thwarted. Alexander the Great is another example of a man who attempted to rule the world and to spread the empire of Greece farther than any other had gone before. And a fever ended his pursuits. Adolf Hitler tried to establish his Nazi regime throughout all of Europe, throughout all of Russia. And how did it end? It ends with him hiding in a bunker and committing suicide. His counsel fails. Crumbles under the mighty hand of God. And how many other countless examples could we add probably from our own lives. When you wake up in the morning and you have certain plans and by the evening, our day has looked nothing like we had expected, like we had planned it to be. The only one whose counsel stands absolutely is God. David says in verses 10 and 11, He says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And the plans of His heart to all generations. And for we who trust in the Lord, this truth especially should be comforting and helpful for us to remember, particularly when we are grieved in times over the seeming unstoppable spread of wickedness that is witnessed in the world. The Puritan Elisha Coles similarly said that this truth of God's sovereignty of counsel will be, quote, of exceeding great usefulness to us in every condition, especially under those darker administrations of which we do not see at present the cause, reason, or tendency. When matters of great importance seem to be confused or neglected, when all things in view fall out alike to all, and you cannot know either good or evil by all that is before you. In those particularly dark administrations, seasons of grief and heartache, this is the truth that should be especially helpful. The Lord's sovereign counsel does not mean that we may in our own day see all evil brought to a complete end. In the Lord's sovereignty, we know that David suffered greatly. In the Lord's sovereignty, our Lord Jesus suffered even more. We are not promised in any way that the evil of fallen man will be reduced before our very own eyes. But what it does mean, what the sovereignty of His counsel does mean is that none of the evil that has ever occurred before, none of the evil that has ever come upon us before, or that may continue on into the future none of it will ever be without purpose. And particularly, without a good purpose in accomplishing the good and perfect will of God. That kind of hopelessness is a hopelessness that only the atheistic mind can know. If the world is as they believe, a godless place, and everything that happens is nothing more than the result of a random chance, then truly, the evil that is present in the world is utterly meaningless. And either despair or hedonism is the only logical conclusion to draw. But the sovereignty of God teaches us that even the worst kind of evil committed by wicked men or experienced in a fallen world is all for the good of God's people. And the chief example we have of this is, of course, the cross of Christ. There has been... No greater act of evil ever committed by the hands of men than the unjust crucifixion of the holy, righteous, spotless Son of God. And yet, in and through that very work, in and through those designs and counsels of wicked men to do evil, God was working the greatest good. God's counsel to reconcile the world to Himself was being fulfilled in and through the evil intentions of wicked men. And so we can rejoice, friends, exceedingly in the sovereignty of God's counsel. Because it teaches us to recognize and to understand that even the darkest of times and the worst kinds of evil we may experience are ultimately for our good and the goodness of God's purposes. But a third truth to note about the Lord's sovereignty concerns also His sovereignty of election. His sovereignty of election. Now this is a truth, of course, which states that the Lord has chosen who His covenant people will be. We do not choose Him. He chooses us. And here in verse 12, we see David reflecting on this very thing. He says here, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. And then it's, original context, this of course, most directly and immediately refers to the people of Israel. To the nation of Israel. They were a nation whom God had uniquely chosen out of all the other nations in the world to enter into a covenant with. To enter into a covenantal relationship with. He did not make a covenant with Assyria. He did not make a covenant with Egypt. He judged Egypt. He entered into no covenant with any of the peoples from the land of Canaan. They were, as had been prophesied some 400 years prior in the life of Abraham, designated for judgment because of their wickedness and evil in the land. He enters into no covenant with any of those people. But in accordance with His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He made a covenant with the nation of Israel, which gave to them a unique and privileged status among all the other nations in the world. No other nation could say what they could say about their nation. That the Lord, Yahweh, the God of all creation, has chosen us to be His possession and to be His heritage. But of course we know as well from the unfolding storyline of Scripture that the Mosaic covenant that they entered into with God was not a fixed and unbreakable covenant. It had, from its very beginning, an expiration date. It assumed its own insufficiency and its own end when it prophesied and promised the rebellion of Israel and the need for a work of God greater than the Mosaic Covenant. A work of God to grant new hearts to His people along with subsequently new priests. It pointed to something better to come. It pointed to a new and renewed people to come. And that promise has ultimately been realized in the coming of Christ and in the building of His church. Christ is the One who is the true Israelite who perfectly fulfilled the law's demands. And His church, His people, have become the blessed nation whose God is the Lord. This statement here is not a statement that most immediately applies to the United States of America. Or that most immediately applies to Russia or China or Malawi or any other country. It applies to the church. Those who are in Christ are the holy and blessed nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, for example, draws on this very language when Peter says of the church, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession. Which means that if you are in Christ, You are the elect of God. You are the people chosen to be His heritage. You are a citizen of His blessed nation and people. You are most especially a partaker of the fulfillment of this very blessing. And if you have believed in Christ, it was not because there was something superior in your will, or in your intellect. It was not because your mind was firing on all cylinders whereas others was not. It was not because you were smarter. It was not because you were stronger or wiser than others. It was not because you were more righteous than others. Because of course, if you have come to believe in Christ, you have also come to understand that you are a sinner and a wretch among men before a holy God. And you have come to understand that it is only the grace of God that has saved you. Now, if you have come to believe in Christ and have been joined to His people, and to His nation, it was because God in His sovereignty chose you to be a people for His own possession. And why did He choose you? Why did He do this gracious act? He did so for no other reason than that He loved you. That's it. There's no explanation that's given why you and not another. Other than the fact that God has set His affections and His heart and His love on you. Uniquely. As He did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob while He leaves the Amorites and the Egyptians in their darkness, why did He choose the nation of Israel? He explained to them in Deuteronomy 6 for no other reason than He had made promises to their forefathers and that He loved them. And it is the same for all who are believers in Christ. For no other reason than He had determined to pour His grace and His love upon you. And this is a precious truth for the people of God. Because it reminds us again and again that our salvation does not ultimately depend upon us. It is a work of God. It is a work of His grace. It is a gift. Freely given. And what you do for your part when you come to Christ is nothing else except to receive. Receive His grace. Receive His life. Receive His righteousness. And the promise we have in His Word is that if he has begun this good work in us, he will surely bring it to completion. Nothing will thwart his will to save those upon whom he has set his affections. Not death, not sin, not Satan, not any of the powers of the world can ever separate God's people from His love. A promise given to us so clearly in Romans chapter 8. This particular truth, friends, is not intended to be a theological club that we swing around and use as a tool of boasting. Saying to others, I am chosen. While you are not, that is never in any context in Scripture the reason for the explanation and revelation of the doctrine of election. In every single instance this glorious truth is ever found, it is always for the purpose of encouraging the people of God to rest in the sovereign work of salvation, He has secured for them. And thus, it becomes a source not of pride, but of praise for us to the Lord. He has begun this good work, and He will complete it. Which leads us finally to the fourth truth that we'll consider briefly about the Lord's sovereignty. Which concerns, closely related to election, his sovereignty in salvation. His sovereignty in salvation. In our Psalm, from verses 13 to 19, David concludes from the Lord's sovereignty over creation and from his position as Creator that salvation is only found in Him. And he's particularly thinking here about salvation from a military perspective. Since he was, of course, the king of Israel, representing the rule of God on earth, and was frequently engaged in many military conflicts. And he's making the point that not even the greatest armies are what give a king or a nation his victory and salvation. He says in verses 16 to 17, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. And David knew this to be true, of course, both from what was taught in the law. You think of examples like the Exodus or battles during the wilderness wanderings or the conquest of Canaan. But David also knew this to be true from his own conflicts with men like Goliath and like Saul. It was not David's great strength that toppled Goliath. And it wasn't his military superiority that brought Saul's rule to an end. We know that David himself was often on the run with only a band of soldiers with him. It was ultimately the Lord and the Lord alone who gave him these victories. Salvation, then, does not ultimately come by the strength of man, but by the strength of God. And it comes, he says, to those who fear Him. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, he says. On those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. And in the same way that David knew the Lord as Savior through his own life as King, so also will those who know the Lord now know Him as Savior, both spiritually and eternally. And we can think of many ways in the Christian life that this is seen and known. Whether we think of our justification that we've considered the last couple of weeks, or we think of our sanctification, or the new birth, or our adoption in Christ, There are many ways in which we come to know the Lord as our Savior. But chief among all of them is the fact that we will know the Lord as Savior in and through the glory of the resurrection. When every enemy shall be subdued, death and Hades shall be cast into the lake of fire. We shall put on life as a new garment, clothed in immortality and covered forever in glory. No horse will ever conquer the grave for us. No technological advances shall ever lessen death's power. No military strength shall defeat the dragon or crush the enemies of God. But those who fear the Lord and who hope in His steadfast love, who hope in His covenant promises, and who wait for His salvation, all of them shall know victory even over the mightiest of powers and it won't come through the work of our hands but by the hand of Christ who is the king and of course as we are now in this Christmas season this is one of the most important truths about the birth of Christ and the entrance of the son of God into the world When we think about Christ's birth, it has many, many significant points to it. There are many implications that arise from the fact that the eternal Son of God was born a lowly infant and enters into the world. There are many things that we could point to that show us the significance of the birth of Christ. But chief among them is that His very birth was a divine signal that death's own days have been numbered. What do we sing? When we sing these Christmas hymns and carols, what are the things that we sing about? We not only sing about His birth, but we sing about His death, we sing about His resurrection, we sing about His conquest over the world. And we sing about this chiefly in one of the songs we'll sing in just a moment. Hark the herald angels sing. Here in this song we sing of Christ's birth that he was listen born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Christ, our King, is the one who fights for us. He is the one who goes before us. He is the one who is our strength and who has conquered the grave and who is the first fruits of the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. And when he comes again from heaven, death shall (laughs) be no more. The shows so. himself sovereign over all by defeating the very last enemy and bringing life into the whole of creation forever and ever. The birth of the lowly babe, the birth of the king of kings, is a signal to all of creation. The death's reigning power is coming to an end. And when Christ lives his life, gives it up on a cross, and subsequently rises from the grave, it was as if the, the gavel of the judge's judgment seat came down with a loud, thunderous sound. And death heard its last warning before it's lined up against the wall and receives the death penalty. Christ has accomplished for us a victory we could never secure for ourselves. Namely, redemption from sin and eternal life with God forever and ever. And it is the very fact that He is sovereign over all that allows us, causes us, gives us the foundation upon which we can rejoice that in the same way Christ was raised from the dead, so also will He raise us from the dead on that day of God's mighty vengeance and salvation. And So friends, the sovereignty of God is what should cause us to praise the Lord. Not disdain Him. Not turn away from Him. Not have anger towards Him. But it should cause us always to rejoice. Let's uh, close together with a word of prayer to the Lord. Well, Father, we are grateful that as the Creator of all things, You have established Your strength. And You have revealed to all creation what Your will is, what Your purposes are, what You are doing in the world, and what the end will be. As the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, You have revealed to us the direction all history is moving in. And because You are sovereign, we know that Your counsel and Your purposes will never fail. And so Lord, I pray that You would cause us to be a people who rejoice and who take comfort in these sweet promises. That although there may be times of darkness, of evil, of things that happen in our lives of which we have no idea why or what is going on, we can rest that all things will work together for our good. And we thank You for the hope that You've given to us in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.